Hey everybody in Serial Killer Country, my name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week we'll discuss something new and interesting in the serial killer world, and then we'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then because most serial killer fans just love to be spooked, Brian's going to lead us down the road of the paranormal into something he found to be particularly creepy this week. Uh, This week, we're going to be discussing the updates in the Green River Killer case. I am going to be telling you about the very interesting and all I can say is it's a winding long road to, to discuss the Lonely Hearts Killers. And as usual, Brian does not tell us what he's going to talk about until it's time. No, the information is redacted. And before we get started, one thing I do want to discuss is something I'm really excited about. Uh, Everyone who follows the TikTok or you follow the podcast know that I make jewelry. I run a company called The Magic Clasp, and I have decided to make a series of serial killer inspired jewelry. I'm just calling it the serial uh, the serial series. That's so awkward. But I have to work <laughs> on the name. <laughs> but my intention is the week you are hearing this podcast, February 8th, right before Valentine's Day, yeah, yeah. Uh, to have it released to you. And there are 12 different uh, weapon-based earrings for your j- jewelry-wearing excitement. Yeah, so if you have a loved one in your life, you want to um, express some feelings towards <laughs> you have some murderous <laughs> intentions for someone you love and they also like to dress fabulous these are perfect for them <laughs> uh, now more on topic with our weekly newsworthy item uh they have finally discovered the youngest victim of gary ridgeway they have not known who she is for a long time now And for those of you listening, if you don't know who Gary Ridgway is, he's the Green River Killer. And he was initially convicted of 48 different murders uh, in Washington State between 1980 and the 1990s. And it was uh, pretty intense. He was called the Green River Killer because that's where he originally found his victims. Later on, he moved to dumping them in the woods in Washington State. And if you are someone who's not aware, Washington State is just full of open wilderness oh yeah i have you been there i have not but uh it's it's just it's a beautiful place but i can imagine that it's a place where people get lost absolutely 100 percent. so when he got caught he made a deal and he gave a 49th victim uh and they took the death penalty off the table and he agreed to just life in prison if they would give him an additional victim. People have always assumed that there were more people that potentially he killed. Later on, he confessed to 71 different people, but they haven't fully recovered it. And because of the nature of where all these bodies were dumped, it's virtually impossible to necessarily find them if he doesn't direct people towards them. Right, right. Okay. Uh, His main victims were runaways and People in vulnerable position, vulnerable positions, so sex workers and teen runaways. Uh, he strangled them and then would do things to them after they were already deceased. So necrophilia. And uh, but even though that is horribly grotesque, it is really exciting. I think for the families and some of the people who have been waiting for decades for information. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
to find this girl. Uh, for years, they only knew her as Bones 10. Bones 10. Yeah. Uh, it bothered the particular detective because she was roughly between the age of 10 and 12 years old. Oh. Yeah. She was very, very young. Uh, and... From what the one lead detective said, he just said they were just it was the body recovery process was daunting for them. Um, and they have never stopped searching for some of these nameless victims from Gary Ridgeway. Some of the people who were found, if you look it up on like Wikipedia or something, it just says like Jane Doe. African-American or Jane Doe, this person. Mm -hmm. So there's so same thing for Samuel Little. Uh so many of their victims, especially when they are people who are sex workers or just transient in general, they don't know, you know, where they found these. Right. And or they don't know who these people are. I see it says it's 36 years later now. Mm-hmm. And... And uh, one of the task force members, his name is Dame, Dave Reichert? Richter? I'm really bad with names. But he became sheriff in 1997 in this area and he really began pushing for more funding for forensic testing so they could try and find more people so this has been a a group effort multiple different people have come on board who've been trying to get uh people named and they say now that he's pled guilty to 59 murders it's just but regardless, uh, she is no longer Bones 10. Her name is Wendy Stevens. She was 14 years old. And she ran away from home in Colorado and was murdered by Gary Ridgway. So even though it's sad how she died, it's good to, at least for her family to know, even now, decades later, what happened to her. Because right. I'm sure they've never known. Absolutely. Yeah. Just that closure. That's what people need. Which, as far as they're concerned actually closes the green river killer case finally oh wow after so long they know all of the names of the victims mind you he still says there's 10 other people he's killed or 11 other people he's killed but mm. you can't necessarily believe serial killers in this situation because they love the attention and they love to hear or be in the news and have people think about them so it says the identification doesn't affect his criminal case because he already pled guilty to killing. Right. He already agreed her. during so, his original trial that he killed her. He just didn't know her name. Oh, okay. I was about to ask, like, how do you claim that you killed somebody, but you don't know who they are? Well, there's still proof of death and probably he wasn't exactly, how do I say this? He wasn't exactly uh, hiding what he was doing with the bodies. He thought that he was dumping them in such a location that nobody would go looking for them. Gotcha. And he was picking women and young girls who he thought nobody cared about. Gotcha. Gotcha. A, gotcha. a lot of people assume that he was like a mission-based killer because so many of his uh, attacks were on sex workers. But I don't think he had any particular feelings about them. I think he knew that Sex workers are often transient and uh, a lot of them are far from home. Mm. They're not necessarily working out of their own communities. Right. And if he attacked those women, he would be able to get away with it. Um, not to mention he didn't actively sexually assault them while they were alive, which I have all sorts of questions. Oh, okay. 
Okay. <laughs> I just, my thought process always is, you know, what's going on with your head that you can only do those things to when a, someone is dead? To a dead body. Why? Yeah. That's just, that's a whole nother layer of the entire process. Because strangulation, I think, at least from my many, many years of watching Criminal Minds, is a sexual act for some of these people. I mean, I guess it's a sexual act for people when they're alive, this too. This is true. No kink shaming. <laughs> but, um, like, that, the act of, like, strangling the person is the, the release for them. But then for Gary Ridgway, he would come back, like, days later. And my thought process on that, too, is also, it had to be disgusting. Uh, uh, I don't even want to think about it. Ugh. don't want to think about it. Ugh. Oh, yeah. Absolutely awful. But... Ugh. At least uh, for, you know, uh, at least for our girl, Wendy Stevens, uh, her family gets to know what happened to her as terrible as it might be to know the truth. This is true. And for the sheriffs and other people in Washington, they get to finally close the chapter on Gary Ridgway. And he's just in prison where he'll be until he probably dies. Thankfully. So deservedly. Yeah, I was thinking Thankfully. that too. <laughs> well, moving on from the horrors of Gary Ridgeway, this week I want to talk about, I don't really usually have a lot of favorite killers because I think that's a weird thing and I know some of you listening will probably be a little bit offended but I like to say that I am casually like intrigued by serial killers and I'm very into their psyches but I don't have favorites because I don't think we should have favorites and we definitely shouldn't treat them like celebrities right exactly uh, but before we jump in I just I want to set the stage for you it's a uh, it's the 40s 1940s there's a well-dressed, slim man, slightly balding, sitting in a wooden chair across from two detectives. He begins telling this winding, tawdry tale of sex, lies, and murder. He tells these Michigan cops sitting in front of him, I'm no average killer. And sitting next to him is his plus-size lover. She pauses to wipe the sweat from his head and lovingly brushes his hair back. The two of them discuss this journey of deception and betrayal and the deaths of 17 different women. The Daily News and the New York Mirror named them the Lonely Hearts Killers because they used personal ads to find their victims. But before we need to learn about how they got caught, we need to talk about who they were before they even met each other. Sounds fantastic. Let's get into it. So uh, the woman in this <laughs> group, her name was Martha Beck, but she was born Martha Jewel Seabrook in 1919 in a town in Northwest Florida called Milton. As a child, she developed a glandular condition that caused her to physically mature like significantly faster. So by the age of 10, she was taller and had all of the secondary sex characteristics of an adult woman, along with the sexual drive of an adult as well. Oh. This caused a lot of struggles in her life, uh, specifically in middle school. She was overweight. And I mean, we know this kids are awful. And she was ridiculed a lot. Uh, her older brother actually sexually assaulted her multiple times. And when she told her mother about it, her mom blamed her and began physically abusing her. Uh. From that moment on, wherever Martha went, 
Her mom went too, and if any kind of boy showed any interest in Martha, her mom would chase him away and scream insults at him. Wow. A unique way of dealing with your child uh, having been assaulted. But... Mm-hmm. That's, um, I, I, I hate it already. Yeah, the ridicule for her size and body didn't stop throughout her teen years, and she actually became very reclusive, withdrawn, and had virtually no friends who were her own age. She attended a nursing school and graduated first of her class in 1942. Oh, nice. Unfortunately, by this time, she was well over 200 pounds, and it was hard for her to get a job in the nursing field because, listen, fat shaming didn't start in the 2000s. So I guess the 1940s were more fat shaming than we thought. Uh, She was forced to take a job working for a mortician in a local funeral home preparing female bodies for burial. Uh, It was a strange and very upsetting environment for Martha because she was already incredibly isolated. Later that year, desperate for a new life at all, she joins the army as a nurse and moves to California. Uh, She got into a rather unhealthy cycle of going to bars at night and meeting soldiers and having sex with them. After one of these encounters, she gets pregnant. And the father was a soldier who was completely uninterested in being with her. And when he found out she was pregnant, he attempted to kill himself. Oh, oh, what? Yeah. Himself? Yes. Uh, I'm guessing because I, I know that when you have a baby with someone in the military, the government looks out for you. I don't know if what his his reasoning was or maybe he was just someone who was also kind of mentally ill, you know? Yeah, oh, that's just a weird but, Way to go. I mean, that really upset Martha because she's unable to convince this man to marry her and ashamed that he'd rather die than be with her. Mm. She uh, returns to Florida now depressed and alone and pregnant. She realizes back home she needs to explain how she got pregnant. It is the 40s. So she tells uh, she buys a wedding ring Mm -hmm. and she wears it and she tells people that she met a a man in California, a Navy man, and that he was currently at, you know, stationed in duty on the Pacific, but eventually they get to meet him. Of course, that day would never come. Of course. So she made up another story and sent herself a telegram saying that he'd been killed in action. Absolutely. Oh, my God. The town mourned for her, and there's actually, like, like an obituary for this fake man? Are you serious? So wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I this... told you these people were out of this world wild. So, okay, so she fakes a, an engagement. She fakes a husband. Uh, okay, a husband. Um, he dies, so she doesn't have to keep the lie up anymore, which is a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so the town, the, the town she's living in, yes, the has, small town, like everybody knows. So, so is he from this? Is, no, it, he's made up. Okay, no, I mean, okay, no, is this made up man from this small town? I assume he was from California. No one would have known him from this small town. Okay, so then why was did they have the obituary in the small town? Yes. That he it was listed in the local paper. Everyone mourned the loss of her husband. Oh my gosh, she had him all up in this. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and then spring of 1944, she gives birth to a Willa Dean. Oh, uh, then she meets a bus driver named Alfred Beck, and she gets pregnant again, like very quickly. 
and he reluctantly marries her a couple months later. Mm. Within six months, they are divorced, and Martha loses her job. So now she is alone, and she has no income. And she has one and a half children. She Yes, she now has a, a newborn and, like, a couple, what, like a year old baby at this point? Oh, goodness. Okay. So uh, it's not surprising to me, but maybe to others it might be. But she becomes enamored with fantasy and romance novels and movies like Confidential Agent or Gaslight. They were really popular around the time. Just romantic movies, too. Probably what we would call the traditional like rom-com or, or you know, Nicholas Sparks movies now oh. <laughs> is what she got obsessed with. You're talking about me. <laughs> 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 Things I didn't know about until today. I love rom-coms. I love rom-coms, but I don't like Nicholas Sparks. Mm, okay. I think Because I, I like the funny nature of the romantic stuff, yeah. not the... I've been dreaming about you for years and my life is horrible and now we met each other and it's going to be okay because we love each other. I don't understand. Um, I want to be happy and in love, not sad and in love. That's just me though. (laughs) But uh, she gets, she starts reading these true confession magazines and she dreams of a man who's going to save her from her loneliness and desperation. In early 1946, she secures a job at Pensacola Hospital for Children, which is a really uh, well-renowned place. Uh, she's a great nurse, and she takes her job very seriously and gets quickly promoted. She's finally financially stable, but she still doesn't have this love story that she's been thinking about all of her adolescence into early adulthood. And one of her coworkers, as a joke, puts like writes her name and address and adds it to uh, a Lonely Hearts Club advertisement. And the advertisement goes to her house. When she sees it, she's initially upset. Uh, Lonely Hearts Clubs, for anyone listening, are the equivalent of dating apps for us now. Yeah. You uh, fill out a form. They put your listing into a magazine or a newspaper. People can then write back to you. And that's how people met each other. In the early 1900s, uh, yeah. when they didn't have cell phones. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I mean that was a, I don't, I don't say a, it was a dick move for their coworkers. It was very that. rude. Yeah, it was very rude of them to do that. And initially, she's upset, but then she's like, you know what? I'm gonna do it anyway. <laughs> there you go. You help me and out. And she decides to rather defiantly place an ad in Mother Deneen's Family Club for Lonely Hearts. You have to fill out this form describing yourself for the publication. And she leaves out the part that says she is 250 pounds and has two kids. Oh, sis, you got to be honest with yourself. So catfishing, also a part of the 1940s. Yeah, you got to be honest with yourself. Come on. Every day she comes home from work and checks the mail, waiting, waiting for this, this brilliant, wonderful man to find her. And finally, someone responds. He is the only person who ever responded to her ad. And his name was Ray Fernandez. Mm. So the second half of our outrageous couple is Ray Fernandez. And Raymond Martinez Fernandez was born in Hawaii on December 17th, 1914. His parents were proud Spanish people who were kind of let down by the fact that their kid was kind of sickly looking and very frail. Like they made no, uh, they they were very obvious about that. factor that they didn't like that he didn't have a strong deportment 
when his when he's three, his family moves to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and he has a pretty mundane life. Uh, at 18, he decides to go to Spain and work on his uncle's farm. And that's kind of when he sort of becomes like the man that people always wanted him to be. Well, yeah. I mean, you're working on a farm, so you're definitely going to like yeah, bulk I, up. and Suddenly, he was this suave, handsome young man, and he was really well liked into the village of Orgaiva. And uh, he marries a woman. By the name of Encarnacion Robles when he's 20 years old in 1934. Mm. It took me a long time to figure out how to say her name. <laughs> Encarnacion. And it's a cool name, but Spanish stuff trips me up sometimes. <laughs> so they're having a great time. And then World War II happens. Ray uh, joins the Merchant Marines of Spain. And he becomes a British spy and achieved a lot of notoriety, actually, in the intelligence gathering community. There's not a whole lot of information about this time in his life because it was literally top secret. But he gets commanded by the Defense Security Offices of Gibraltar, and they say that he carried out extensive dangerous missions very well. Hmm. Right. All the things that we didn't realize when I first learned about this guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was actually a spy <laughs> in World War II. Secret but agent. Man. It's 1945. It's after the war. He returns to America to find work and then send for both his wife and son. He gets passage on a freighter ship heading to the Dutch West Indies. And while on board, he has, a, he almost dies. Um, he's heading onto the deck of the ship and a steel hatch opens and falls directly onto his head. This injury causes a large indentation on his forehead and very much. It was a traumatic brain injury. When the ship docked in December of 1945, he gets placed in a hospital and he stays there until March. Oh, when he's released, he is almost a different person. Before his accident, he was just socially adept in a people person. But after the accident, he's moody, quiet, very quick to anger. Uh, personality disorders after head trauma have been documented for centuries. That's true. And in the serial killer community, this is documented as well. Yeah, definitely. Oh. Uh, for Ray, his injury fractured his skull at the location of his frontal lobe. And for folks who haven't taken an intro to psychology course, your frontal lobe is responsible for regulating how you learn, your ability to reason. It holds most of the logic-based segment of your brain function. And Ray's was irreparably damaged. So how old was he at this point? Oh, let's see. It was 1945. And oh, I'm doing math. me do math. It's Sorry. Because I, I just know that, like, the frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until you're after, like, you're 25. Mm, that's so. true. Well, 1945, and he was born in 1919. So he was 26. Okay. So, so he's just on the cusp of being where you would be considered to be yeah, developed. Yeah. yeah. So his common sense is definitely gone forever. No, no. That's a really good point to bring up. Uh, so he decides to get on another trip, a ship, right? Mm. And he's going to head to Alabama. Start a new life. Apparently clever, conveniently forgetting that he has a wife and child in oh. Spain. I don't know. Uh, it's definitely a sign that points to his ability to make sensible decisions that he attempts to steal from the ship that he is on. There you go. <laughs> as soon as he goes through customs, he gets caught. And when he's interviewed by police, he can't explain why he did it. He's like, I don't know. I can't think. I can't say why I did it. I saw other men putting a towel or two in their luggage. So I thought I'd do the same. Only I just couldn't stop. Mm. 
He's sentenced to one year in a federal prison in Tallahassee, Florida. While in prison, he meets a Haitian inmate and the two bond and discuss Vodun and Ray becomes obsessed with the occult. Oh, lovely. So for we have a lot of uh, an international audience. Uh, Vodun is a traditional African religion that's roughly over 5,000 years old. And it has a lot of similarities to many other religions like voodoo from Louisiana, voodoo from Haiti, voodoo from Cuba, Vodum from Brazil. They're all kind of similarly based in the same base. They all center around like spirits and other elements that gain energy and essence from the earth and deities that govern humans and nature and sometimes intercede on behalf of humans. It's been very misrepresented in Western media as dark magic or evil and uh, things that, and for Ray, he very much interpreted the information he got from his cellmate into a weird way. Hmm. So uh, he, he got a hold of what I would say the Western version of this information. So he, he definitely took it as dark magic then. He he took it as dark magic and dark magic that he could wield to help himself. Oh, okay. Um, so later on in life, he would report that he had a secret power over women that he'd gained from studying voodoo. Oh. He believed his sexual prowess was at its peak and had been enhanced by deities. He read a book called um, uh, Black Republic, from 1884 and this is still regarded as a major source of misinformation about Vodun. the book is just awful it has entire sections about torture and human sacrifices for power which are not at all what these religions are based around uh the the book that book itself that haitian bible uh black republic is what a lot of the hollywood understanding of voodoo and why we got those movies mm. back then uh about the religion so ray begins telling other inmates that he can have sex with a woman who is a large distance away from him when he places some of his voodoo powders into the letters that he writes them he says that those women become attached to him and he can control them now my thought process here is what voodoo powders are you making in jail, sir? <laughs> you don't have access to herbs or roots. What are you making this out of? Like, what is this? Is soap? <laughs> Who knows? Is soap the ramen noodle package? <laughs> uh, but regardless, it's 1946. He gets released from prison. He moves to Brooklyn with his sister. His relatives aren't really excited to see him there because the formerly tall, attractive man who went to war is gone. He's going bald. You can see this giant scar on his head. He doesn't eat a whole lot and he locks himself in his room for days on end. Mm. This is when he would start writing to women in the Lonely Hearts advertisements. He begins seducing lonely women. And when they trust him, he steals their jewelry, money, whatever he can embezzle from them. The victims were usually so embarrassed that they didn't report the scam to the cops. And Ray thought he had found the perfect job for him. Oh he God. could make money and he never had to work. His, awesome. His first major mark was in 1947 and her name was Jane Lucille Thompson. She was recently separated from her husband. And after just a couple of months of letter writing, they brought cruise ship tickets and enjoyed a few weeks of traveling together. Now, I don't know how he convinced her to do this, but... He takes her to meet his wife in Spain, and she is strangely okay with this. Oh, so he remembered suddenly. Things are going well. Um, now, mind you, like, they've been traveling since October, 
And so then on November 7th, the two women get into a fight. Ray is seen leaving the hotel room in an area called La Linnea. The next morning, Jane is dead and Ray skips town. Oh. Leaving poor Encarnacion alone again. Oh, my God. He catches the next boat to the United States where he goes to Jane's apartment in New York City, forges her will and takes possession of her apartment and all of her possessions, even though her elderly mother was living there. Like He literally kicked an elderly woman he out of her, her home. Out. Oh, my God. During the entire time he was traveling with Jane, uh, he corresponds with the Lonely Hearts women. And one of those women was Martha Seabrook Beck. Oh, my God. So, okay. So, before you get any further, mm-hmm. initially, he is contacting her to basically steal her money. Mm-hmm. But eventually. Something else happens. Ooh, love happens. <laughs> that in a good 10-15 minutes. Oh my god. (laughs) So Martha's in Florida living her life as a nursing supervisor at the hospital. Remember she got promoted on like within a couple months. Right, right. She's very good at this job. Just before Christmas she receives her first and only letter from anyone from the Lonely Hearts Club and it's Ray Fernandez. He's in New York City and he tells her he's a successful businessman who's made his fortune importing and exporting goods. He says he is a native Spaniard recently arrived in America. He tells her he's here in this apartment that's much too large for a bachelor, but I hope to someday share it with a wife. And tells Martha that because she's a nurse, he knows that she has a full heart with a great capacity for love. A.K.A. I know you got some money. Mm -hmm. This is just too much for Martha, and she carries the letter everywhere with her. She reads it all day. She buys the most expensive stationery she can afford and begins writing him. She sends over two dozen letters and pictures. Now she doesn't send a regular body shot. She instead sends a picture of the entire nursing staff that she works with where she's standing in the back row because she's taller and you can't see her body. And she tells Ray, this doesn't do me justice. No, no, really, you you think? (laughs) I don't know which one is you. Of course, to Ray, none of that mattered because Martha was his next mark. And at this point, he has now robbed roughly 12 women and killed one of them. Uh, He didn't care what any of them looked like as long as they had assets. He assumed that since Martha was a nurse, she had money and that since she'd been previously married, she probably had a house. Over time, he built up a routine and a script, and this is what he followed. So after he would uh, send a few letters, they would correspond back and forth, he would ask the woman for a lock of her hair. He uses the hair to perform a ritual, which he believed would make him irresistible to the woman. He got these rituals from a book called Magic Island by William Seabrook. And I must inform you that this was not an African man who wrote this book, but a white journalist. Of course. So it's a little weird that he wrote the voodoo Bible. Like you know, sir. Um, Like you know. Ray actually saw it as a positive uh, element that Martha and his favorite author shared the same surname. The next step after performing the ritual and creating this anticipation was to set up a meeting. In this case, he took a train down to Pensacola, Florida, and they met December 28th, 1947. We can't really be sure what either one of them thought during this time, but they did spend several sexy days together. Hmm. Martha actually begged him to stay and marry her, but Ray was about making his money and he had other women to meet. 
Wait, this um, is the first meeting though, right? Yes. And she's already yes. Okay, put a ring on it. Got it. I mean, I, I, I think the timeline was a little bit different back then. Okay, yeah, okay. No, no, you're right, you're right, you're right. You know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, we weren't, people weren't staying together for like 10 years and then getting married. That's yeah. very much a modern era. Come thing. on, no, 10 years? <laughs> people do that. And they boast about it. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm not staying with somebody for 10 years and not getting married, but that's just me. Yes, yes. <laughs> but regardless, uh... Ray tells her that he has to go back to New York for business and that he come back. Well, Martha goes home to Milton and she tells her family and friends that she's going to get married again. They begin prepping everything for her. She has a she on the day of her bridal shower. She receives a letter from Ray saying that she misunderstood his feelings for her and he would not be coming back to Florida. Ooh. Martha attempts suicide and somehow this convinces Ray to invite her to visit him in New York. What? She stays there for two weeks and when she gets back home, she gets fired without explanation. Now this is from Martha's perspective because I imagine that the reason why she got fired is that she just took off yeah. for two weeks to go visit some random guy. Yeah, like, did you even give notice or did no? Well, Martha believes that the town is racist and has learned of a scandalous affair she's having with her Latin lover from New York. Oh, my God. She picks up her last paycheck, which was issued to Martha Fernandez. She already changed her yes, name. Even though they never got married. Oh. She packs up her children and gets on a bus to New York. She arrives at his door January 18th, 1948. And Ray saw this as a large error in his history of being a con artist because never before had he allowed women to know where he lived. Yeah. You, you kind of donked up right there, buddy. Ray didn't hate having her around, though. She cooked for him, cleaned, catered to his every need. But he wasn't really wild about the children. And on January 25th, she drops them off at the Salvation Army and she would have no contact with him again until she was in prison. Her children? Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh. Once they're free from the children, things really take off. Ray is completely open and honest with her. He shows her all the Lonely Hearts letters, explains he's a con artist and how he's been making money robbing women who fell in love with him. He even tells her about his wife in Spain and several other women he'd robbed in different states. Instead of running away like a sane person might, Martha said, here, let me help you. And the two made plans to rob a woman in Pennsylvania named Esther Hen. Mm. Martha posed as Ray's sister. And Ray got married to Esther in Fairfax, Virginia. They all returned to the apartment in New York. And Esther later told reporters after they got in car years, years later uh, that Ray was really nice until she wouldn't sign over her life insurance policy and teacher's pension fund to him. Mm. Then, then she overheard the neighbors talking about a woman who died in Spain and she ran away from Ray Fernandez, leaving her car and a few hundred dollars she had kept in the apartment. There you go. A mm. choice that potentially saved her life. After that, they attempted to con Myrtle Young from Green Forest, Arkansas. And Martha again posed as the sister. But this time, after he married Myrtle, 
She did everything in her power to make sure that they did not consummate the marriage. Oh, my goodness. Because, mind you, like, they were traveling, like, back to New York. Right. So she's, like, in the hotel, she would sleep in the bed with Myrtle so that Myrtle couldn't sleep with Ray. Oh, my God. (laughs) And it got to the point where Myrtle was so fed up that she began complaining to Ray. And Ray had to drug her to make her go to sleep. And pretty much at that point, he went, this is too much work. And he puts her on a bus back to Arkansas Mm -hmm. while she is literally like sedated. (laughs) Mind you, they keep the money that she was bringing to the marriage, which was $4,000. Oh my God. uh, Which was a lot more money now and then. But, and actually like she had to be like removed from the bus by police because she was like so heavily sedated. She actually died the next day. This is a second story. This is a second story you've told with sedation and with death. Because they were heavily sedated. Apparently, people don't know what they're doing when they're doing it on the slide. <laughs> imagine that. So on their way back heading to New York, they stop and meet several other women who've been talking to Ray. But none of them really had enough money. And things were kind of starting to get financially tight. So they locate Janet Fay. She's 66 and from Albany. Janet is loaded and ultra-religious. As soon as Ray figures this out, he begins peppering his letters with small mentions of God and religion. And, oh, yeah, I just went to church the other day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they followed the normal setup and went to Albany. Ray proposes. Janet accepts. They make plans to move to Long Island, where Martha has already begun renting an apartment. Janet cleans out all of her bank accounts in January of 1949, which is roughly $6,000. They get to Long Island on January 4th and everything is going well. They have dinner. They go to bed. And then in the middle of the night, Martha says she wakes up and Janet is dead on the ground. (coughs) She says later on that she walked into their room and she saw Janet naked with her arm around Ray. Oh. And she blacked out from rage. When she comes to Ray shaking her, Janet's on the floor with a very serious head wound. Well, she's not completely dead yet, but getting She's dying. The two clean the room, wrap the body in sheets and towels, and go to bed. The next day, they buy a trunk to dump the body. At first, they drive it to Ray's sister's house and convince her to hold it in the basement for two weeks. Then Ray gets it and buries it in the cellar of the rental house that they were planning to taken Long Island and covers it with cement. They write letters to Janet's family after cashing all of the checks. The letters say how she's so happy. She's going to be Mrs. Martin soon. Oh, I didn't mention that part. He's not going by Ray Fernandez with these women. He's using the name Charles Martin. Oh, very, you know, that's smart. So she's going to be Mrs. Martin soon and move to Florida with him. The only problem is that Janet doesn't own a typewriter and she doesn't know how to type. So her family is like, hmm? And they report her they report her missing to the police. Smart. Oh my God. Yeah. Ray and Martha ditch town and head to Michigan. Their next victim uh, is Delphine Downing, and she is 44. She has a two-year-old. And at this point, she knows Ray as the businessman, Charles Martin. Mm-hmm. He turns on the charm and they're having a great time. Only Ray is sleeping with Delphine, and Martha is livid. Uh, this bliss is short-lived, though. They're, they were having a good time until Delphine walks into the bathroom one morning and sees Charles without his toupee and gets 
upset. Why? She calls him a fraud and a liar. Just because I have no hair does not make me a liar. I just don't want to be like toupee. Come on. It's just funny because he is a fraud and a I mean, liar, hey, but for the wrong reason. Technically, yes, I am, but you don't know why I am. <laughs> So Martha manages to keep her cool and convince Delphine to just take some sleeping pills and relax. You'll feel better when you wake up. Mm, some sleeping pills. You only take like one or two. Come on now. <laughs> well, Delphine does what she does. She goes to sleep. The problem is the two-year-old baby is there and it's crying. <sighs> and I'm guessing maybe the kid realized that something was wrong. You know, kids are very perceptive in that they way. They really are. And Martha's already riled up and kind of pissed off. And... She grabs the child and chokes it. Oh, she does God. not kill the baby at this point. But Ray is like, why did you do that? She's going to see the baby has marks on its neck. And now she's going to report us to the police. So Ray goes to Delphine's bedside table. And takes her ex-husband's gun, puts a pillow over her head and shoots her. Ooh. Then Ray and Martha debate what to do with the toddler. Please just drop him off to the police or something. No. They buried Delphine's body and then Martha drowned the child in the bathtub and they dug a second grave. <sighs> okay. While it would have been wise for them to leave town at this point, they do not. Instead, they decide to go to the movies and go back to Delphine's house to get ready to pack. And they hear a knock on the door. Mm. It is two police officers and these their neighbors called the cops oh. because of suspicious activity. Oh, imagine that. Oh, my God. I love these people. <laughs> I love these neighbors and these families. <laughs> right. Story. In this story, the people were like not cutting it. They're like, listen, they're all Janet doesn't know how to type. She's obviously been kidnapped. I love this. <laughs> I love this. Oh, OK. Well, they were arrested on February 28th, 1949. And that's kind of where we started this story. Uh, the arrogant delusional Ray sitting in the Kent County DA's office explaining how he's a sexual god and Martha quietly patting his head and admitting to robbing women with him across America. Ray even tells them, I'm not your average killer and gloats about his dealings. I think there are they're fully aware of the fact that Michigan doesn't have the death penalty and the cops kind of egg them on and Pretty much they convince Ray to confess everything and they say, listen, you'll just get a couple years in jail. You'll probably get paroled in like six years or so. No big deal. Don't, don't ever believe them. <laughs> don't ever believe the police, y'all. But here's the funny thing. The police and Michigan did keep its promise. Um, the problem is the governor of New York figured out that Janet <laughs> mm. Janet was murdered and New York does have the death penalty and New York wanted them back. So they <laughs> cut a deal with Kent prosecutors and convinced Michigan to completely waive the charges for the downing murders for Delphine and her daughter and permit New York to extradite them for the Janet Faye murder because New York intends to execute them. Awesome. Almost immediately, the headlines call them the Lonely Hearts Killers. And as society is known to do, people begin discussing in pretty awful detail this dysfunctional couple and specifically dehumanizing Martha Beck. There were a lot of articles I sifted through and they were all pretty bad. Um, she was called Fat, Simpering, Big Martha, 
Depending on who was discussing her, they listed her weight as anywhere from 200 to 300 pounds. One paper called her the 200 pound figure of wrath. And overall, like of all the articles I looked at, it was just that she was unattractive and uh, they took every chance they could to humiliate her. Apparently, New York has a history of being very rude to any female criminals at the time, and they haven't really stopped doing that in the modern era. Uh, The media just had a field day with the two of them, and it was pretty much seen as though the trial was just a formality and they were definitely already guilty. Right. The trial itself was a complete and total circus. It takes place in the middle of one of the worst heat waves in New York, June 1949. Uh, they choose a young attorney to defend him, to defend the couple. His name is Herbert Rosenberg, which I learned through reading about this was a violation of both ethics and unfair to the the couple. Uh, usually two defendants means two attorneys. Um, uh, but New York didn't care. And they uh, didn't care that they specifically put somebody on here who didn't know what Ellie was doing. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have to they move the trial to the Bronx because they don't I mean, it's it's very hard when you have a case like this in a small community. Long Island, despite being like right on the edge of New York City, it is a very small, tight knit community. People know each other there. So I doubt they would have gotten any sort of a fair trial mm. in the community where the crime happened. Right, so they right. move it to the Bronx, which is a much bigger area. It's actually the particular court uh, building is right around the corner from Yankee Stadium. Like. Huge. Um, actually, during the time this trial happened uh, on it was July 4th, 1949, happens to be even now the largest amount of people who died from heat and heat related accidents out of any other time in America. Yeah. On July 4th, like 1949, 881 different people died. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, I mean, New York, you know how... Well, it wasn't know, just New York, it was all in America, but still uh, it was such a horrible heat wave. Yeah, I was about to say, New York, you know, the humidity in, in, <laughs> up here so is So I, I imagine it was pretty rough to be a spectator uh, in and outside of this courtroom, but people still showed up. Mm-hmm. Ray Fernandez takes the stand first, and he denies any and all role in killing Faye. He says he had only just met Martha... He says he admitted wrongdoing to the Michigan authorities to save the love of his life, Martha Beck. And now he needed to recant his testimony. He actually says on the stand, all my statements were made for this purpose of helping Martha. I love her. It couldn't be anything else. The prosecutor rips him to shreds, bringing up all the other women that Ray slept with during the course of their relationship. Thank you. Ray explains that everyone was allowed to question him and it was very chaotic and he didn't understand which way was up or down when they were in Michigan. And he says that the Michigan DA told him his statement wouldn't be used against him. And if he agreed, he'd only do six years and get paroled. So he admitted to everything because he knew that Martha couldn't do hard time in prison. Okay, but they threw out that case in Michigan, right? Well, so it doesn't really matter because you're in New York. You put to paper this horrific story. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a lengthy and detailed discussion of his crimes. And they pulled those papers and they read them in the courtroom. Just a lot of really grotesque things, um, such as Martha discussing the sound of blood gushing 
and how when Ray was strangling Janet Faye to finish her off, her teeth fell out and they knew that they had to dispose of them so that she couldn't properly be identified. Oh. Like that's stuff they told oh. the Michigan police. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> so when the DA asks Ray, did you shoot Delphine Downing? He says, yes, but I didn't kill Janet Faye. Uh, they decided to recount Ray's discussion of all of his sexual escapades in court. The press Eve had a field day with a three-way poker tournament a that kind of poker tournament mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. yes between ray martha and esther Hen. in fact like the this part of the case was so lurid that people who were there during the recounting of this the rereading of this testimony didn't leave their seats even during lunchtime because they didn't want to lose their place in the courtroom <laughs> Hey, this is juicy. I need to it, stay here. Yes, it was sexy. <laughs> it was raunchy. They were like, this is better than TV. I was about to say the same thing. This is better than TV right now. Let's go. <laughs> oh. So uh, during right before they start recounting the really like raunchy stuff, like Martha tries to tell them that she's ready to take the stand. But they're like, we're not done with him. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't be until the end of July, July 25th, that Martha gets to take the stand. And the day that she chooses to... The day she gets cross-examined, she wears a gray and white polka dot summer dress with several strings of pearls and green wedge strappy heels. That does not match at all. Well, it's not so much that it doesn't match. It's that it's a very inappropriate thing to wear to a trial yeah, when you too. are being put on trial for robbing and murdering an elderly woman sorry i'm just like can you imagine being in the courtroom and going did she steal those from janet you know she did <laughs> like i would immediately think that so she's wearing this like highly inappropriate like kind of sexy outfit to go on stand and like defend herself i'm sorry i'm just fashion police over here this, this, mm -mm. <laughs> sis that is not a look. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're like, listen, I don't really think you should have matched like green shoes. I personally don't think green shoes and gray are a problem. It's just that like when you're a defendant in these sort of trials, like they want you to downplay your look. Yeah. Like, do you remember Casey Anthony? Yeah. She wore like lots of sweaters and like dress, like plain, yeah, bland no, dress. Barely pants. any makeup like, and the stuff last, like that. Right. The last thing Casey Anthony needed to do was pop in that room looking like a sexy party girl mm -hmm. because that's what she was being on. Like, right. Just, that's what she was on trouble for. Ass. Yeah. Apparently, no one gave that message to Martha. <laughs> and. People are all wondering since the beginning of the trial, is she going to cry on stand? Is she going to throw her under the bus? What's she going to do when she gets there? And she begins by recounting her childhood. A lot of the same things that I told you earlier. Right. She discusses her abuse in detail and she discusses how she kept trying to find love and get married. She discusses her suicide attempts. She tearfully tells the crowd how she gave up her children for Ray. And then she tells the court that she helped Ray find women to victimize. She repeats that she does not remember harming Janet Fay, and she fiercely defends their love. And she said, I loved him enough to do anything he asked me to do. So the two of them are kind of pointing fingers at each other mm -hmm. at this point, but okay. in a very subtle way. Yeah, she's kind of like deflecting away mm -hmm. from herself. Okay. She is intensely questioned by the Nassau County District Attorney. His name is Edward Robertson Jr. about her sexual relationship with Ray and this was not the same reaction 
Like Ray's escapades were seen as sexy and people were like, ooh, interesting. Mm -hmm. When uh, Martha starts going into the details about what she did with Ray, because some of it was weird and I'm going to tell you about it. (laughs) Yay. Uh, People leave the courtroom, specifically women. They're kind of freaked out. Um, In fact, when she discusses the voodoo rituals that Ray had her do that were t- that were sexual and voodoo related. Mm. Um, some people were trying to force their way into the court. Some people were trying to get out. The New York Times reported, this is a direct quote from the paper, the Lonely Hearts murder trial was disrupted yesterday afternoon by a near riot of would-be spectators outside of the courtroom. So some people are like, this is horrible and I'm interested. And other people are like, this is horrible, horrible and gross and I don't want to be a part of it. Oh, so wait, did he leave out the voodoo stuff? Um, they didn't want to know about his his relationship with Martha. They asked him about his sexual relationship with the women he robbed. Okay. I was about to say, well, this voodoo was his whole thing, though. I don't think they cared that much about that. The voodoo thing didn't come up until they started cross-examining her and asking her about, well, what did you and Ray do? Yeah, right, right. Okay, okay. And then all of a sudden, she's talking about doing these weird blood rituals with ray nice and Lovely. no one's really interested in hearing about yeah, it i don't think i want to hear that either blood <laughs> so finally 44 after 44 days of testimony uh the jury gets to the, the cases they've they've all put out everything they can and they begin deliberations on august 18th 1949 uh just after dinner at 9 45 p.m after a few hours, the jury requests a rereading of Ray's confession in Michigan. Then they also ask for clarification for the term premeditation. And then they deliberate throughout the night until 8 a.m., hmm. which I didn't realize because I've been on a jury and normally you get to go home at like 5 p.m. So this it's must like have a, been a very big deal. I was about to say, it's like a regular work day, right? Yeah, Nine to five you get to go home and you come back the next day and... Unless eight in the, the morning and unless the trial runs long or something like that I, i'm not quite sure how that works when it maybe because i wasn't on a murder trial so. right right i can't wait to be a juror <laughs> uh the crowds actually had assumed that it was going to take them longer to delib- deliberate so a lot of people went home but at 8 30 a.m august 19th 1949 the jury finds martha beck and ray fernandez guilty of first degree murder of mrs janet fay they do not recommend mercy, and the sentencing sentencing happens a few days later, and the judge would condemn them to death, and they set the date, which I didn't know they used to do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that until recently, but they set the date for October 10th, 1949. Oh, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, nowadays they really don't. You're sitting on fucking... Well, similar to how it works now, both Martha <laughs> and Ray tried to appeal it, mm. and they were able to push it off, actually, from 1949 to 1951. Oh, nice. So they did delay their fate for two more years. Um, both of them apparently had pretty awful times in prison and on death row. They weren't... Um, they were in Sing Sing Prison, which isn't exactly known for being the best place. Right. Um, the tabloids continue to write about Martha, saying she's sleeping with the guards, writing about negative stuff, going, you know, all these things. It, it got so bad to the point that she wrote a letter to the local paper saying that they were being cruel and this was ridiculous. Yeah, like, stop making stuff up. You're, like, you're just doing this for fun now. During the time that they're in prison, they have a weird relationship. Sometimes Ray and Martha say that they hate each other. Other days, they say that they were in love. 
Unknown to Martha, however, Ray is writing his wife and telling her that he's in love with her. I forgot he had a wife. <laughs> this man is inconsistent as all... Just get out. Ugh. I forgot all about his wife. <laughs> My God. During this time period, Martha strangely captures the hearts and imaginations of thousands of women across America. And they empathize with her past and her deep, deep desire to be loved. Um, I feel it. I it feel gets to March 1951. Just before their execution date, Martha sends Ray a love letter. And Ray says, this news brought to me that Martha loves me is the best news I've had in years. Now I am ready to die. So tonight I'll die like a man. Did you not know that she loved you already? I like I said, weird couple. Oh my god. Okay. The closer it gets though to the execution, the more frightened he becomes. And um, in fact, like he's so like upset they have to kind of forcibly carry him to the electric chair. Um, when the time finally comes, his last words were I love Martha. What do the public know about love? When it was Martha's turn, she had a few words for the people who were watching. And I will end my piece with her final statement. Oh, goodness. Okay. She says, what does it matter who is to blame? My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. I was pictured as a fat, unfeeling woman. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? And they were both gone by 11.47 p.m. Wow. And there goes the story of quite possibly some of the weirdest. Just, uh, and they, how they met each other and made it work. They, they, okay, well, did they make it work? I mean, she, she kind of like forced it to work. Mm-hmm. And he was like, eh, I mean, you cook and clean, so you might as well stay a little bit longer. It's real. it's, uh... But that, well, okay, that let me just let me just say that last part was touching, kind of cheered up a little. Just so you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> her weird justification for killing people you thought was very nice. Well, just just her like her, her last words. They were just I don't know. They were, they were just I don't know. <laughs> uh, they also said that uh, right before they like covered her face, she just kind of mouthed the words "here goes," but she didn't say it. She was just like. Because yeah. initially when uh, they were talking in Michigan, she said she was afraid of the electric chair. Uh. So she ended up getting the thing that happened to her. And I don't know if many people know this because I don't know if the electric chair was used globally, but it is a particularly barbaric way to kill people. And if, especially if you do it wrong. Well, here's the thing. It's apparently not as effective or efficient as we've been led to believe. This is true, too. There were many different situations where they had to do it multiple times. Yep. And uh, people uh, that's one of the pe- things that people thought about uh, Albert Fish. They were like, hey, they had to do it a bunch of times because apparently he liked to shove nails in himself. But in fact, they had to do it more than once because they normally had to do it more than once. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> and sometimes people burned that's when they do it wrong or kind of partially cooked like it was really grotesque and uh i just can't imagine being in that room when that kind of thing happened gotta wet that sponge (laughs) green i'm sorry green mile i know i know (laughs) 
I don't even know if that's how they did it. If that's accurate, I, I know. I'm, I know. It's just that every time I see electric hair, I'm like Green Mile. What that sponge? What that sponge? But yeah, uh, I, I would say that they are some of my. I, I like. I liked learning about them this this past week because, and there were things that I learned about them this week that I didn't know at all. Like Ray was apparently a, an intelligence operative during World War II. Yeah, he was a freaking spy. If imagine what his life would have been had he not gotten his skull broken in. Oh, he could have been a. He could have been a. Oh my god! Never mind. Who knows? It's just one of those interesting things because we get in these conversations all the time on the the live streams and the TikToks of what makes a serial killer. You know, right? And a lot of them have traumatic childhoods. We see that with Martha Beck, but a lot of them also have a traumatic brain injury when they're children. We see that with Ray Fernandez. And one of the things that the FBI has said about serial killers is that the one thing that separates them from the rest of us is their choice. Right. They right. end up making a choice. No matter what their fantasies are, no matter what their mental health issues are, they choose to kill people. And that separates them from us. It's not a real big jump, though. I mean, no. <laughs> anybody could become a I was monster. about to say, anybody can decide to actually go out and do these things. That is my fear, too. I don't see the world in that black and white viewpoint of like bad guys, good yeah, guys. Yeah. You know, the world isn't an Avengers movie. Uh, I just, I, so I feel like given the right push, a lot of people could end up bad. This is true. Today's episode of When Killers Get Caught is brought to you by the Magic Claps Boutique which happens to be a company owned by a very own Britney Ransom. If you've seen Britney on her live streams, she's always rocking some awesome earrings that she herself makes. From cute ice cream earrings to spooky mermaid earrings. She even makes self-defense keychains so you can look stylish and protect yourself at the same time. The Magic Class Boutique is going to release some special jewelry for the podcast next month, so keep an eye out for that as well. To learn more, go to www.themagicclasp.com. But I am ready to hear what you have to tell me this evening. Oh, goodness. Okay. Oh, no. Is it going to be bad? It's going to be comical. Oh, dear. (laughs) Okay. That's not a bad thing. The first part is going to be comical. The second part, not so much. Okay. So this week, I was racking my brain to come up with something for, you know, our Valentine's Day episode. Mm-hmm. Huh. For Valentine's Day, like, just, it's, like, it's it's hard to find scary stories that are Valentine's Day inspired or, like, love inspired. But, you know, I, I kind of, I found some stuff. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so hopefully, you know. The stories I, I so I got two stories for you today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hopefully these put people in the mood, and then okay. for love, and then some. Hopefully these put people in the mood for love. Um, okay then. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, 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 okay. <clears throat> so the first story, it's about the Langenhole Church. I know you haven't heard of this. I have no so, idea what you're talking about. I got this story out of. I actually have a very big book of 
True Hauntings. Ooh, okay. It's it's called the Mammoth Book of Hauntings or okay. True Hauntings, but it's really only like five hundred pages, so it's not really mammoth. That's so it's rather large. I've read Harry Potter books that are longer than that. There's like one. Okay, exactly. And anyway, <laughs> not going into mammoth. I'd I'd expect at least two thousand words if you're going to say mammoth. Oh my goodness. Or two thousand uh uh pages. pages. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the Langham Church is located near Colchester, Essex, England. So we're okay. Crossing the hopping the pond. Across the, the pond. Across the pond. Across there the we pond. go. That's yeah, great. Across the pond. Um, so this takes place in the 1950s. So like I mentioned before, it's a church and a manor house. So the story goes, I'm just going to this one story. Um, an apparition appeared in the bedroom of a vicar or a, a clergyman. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Reverend Ernest Merriweather sees is a beautiful spirit. He's just standing in, so he's just standing in front of his window, in the window of the bedroom. Okay. He's admiring the view from the house. Uh, not of the spirit, of course. Um, nothing, something tells him to turn around. And something in his bones. You never turn around, though. He, he senses something in the room with him, or someone in the room with him. He knows there's somebody in there with him. Oh, thanks. I hate it. <laughs> So he walks, he turns around, he walks into a body, um, and he feels the embrace of what is, it, it's, it feels like a naked young woman. But does it look like a naked young woman is the question. I believe that to that. Mm-mm. So it felt like she was pressing her body against him. And this embrace felt fantastic well he was also a clergyman so i need you to uh tell satan to leave sir (laughs) the devil is a liar (laughs) he said you're supposed to be a holy man (laughs) goodness i'm sorry no it's okay my first thought isn't he supposed to yeah that's what i thought the touch of a woman that's why he thought it felt fantastic because he didn't know (laughs) so he said it felt fantastic it was one wild frantic embrace um he tried to embrace her back you know to you know make her feel good as well Mm -hmm. so (laughs) but when he tried uh she seemed to like dissolve in his hands so she like disappeared um he had other supernatural occurrences happen to him but this was like the one that he he felt and this was also one that was of a naked woman now important that's a distinctive detail yeah so there's speculation on who this woman was um is there a name like a special name for naked ghosts I don't think because you know, like if you see the white one, the lady in right, white, right, that's right. considered to be a well-known. I don't want to say trope, but a well-known I like just... legend aspect of these like women in white that we see different places, mm-hmm. women in gray, red ladies. So I'm like, is there a name for when they're nude? I just think it's naked ghosts because <laughs> naked. Like I don't think there are a lot of naked ghost reports. I feel you. Um. So. Maybe people just enjoy it. They don't yeah. want to let anybody know. This is true, too. And, I mean, 
unless it's a mm, there's I read another story that's about a, a bad naked ghost, but oh, uh, like a succubus or an incubus? No, like a it, it was okay. So the story I read it was about a male naked ghost. Oh no, unwanted dick pics. <laughs> I have to blur, bleep that out. I just realized. I mean, basically, that's what it, <clears throat> it was like. And and there was a smell that accompanied accompanied him. It was like a musty smell. Oh musty no, he's a Richard smell. Ramirez zombie. <laughs> he smells like, a, like a goat. He smells like a goat. Oh, gross! <laughs> he's naked and he smells like a goat. So so yeah, that like they're they're bad. Uh, Okay, so this is this case where it's not a bad ghost that's trying to sexually assault you in your sleep. Right, it's a good ghost trying she to sexually just there assault you. And she in just your... gave him a hug and then let him go. Right. All right. Okay, I'm not too, I'm not too spooked by this. No, it's not like the, the stories I'm going to tell you. Not too spooky for Valentine's Day. Hope you guys enjoy them. Oh, <laughs> but uh, one speculation on who this woman was. Um, some have claimed that she was the girlfriend of a rector of Langenhove. And when she got pregnant, he murdered her. And they say she's probably nude because she's re- she's in reenacting one of her happier moments in life. Um, so I guess her being naked, I guess uh, it was. I wouldn't say uh, that night she got pregnant was probably one of the. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that's sad. Yeah. Um, I, I guess this is one way to go out. I guess having recently, yeah, mm-hmm. uh huh, yeah. There you go. That's one way some some guys want to die. There you go. <laughs> okay, another another one is that the ghost is of someone named. Ooh, I didn't look this up. Um, <laughs> um, Arabella of uh, Wadengrave. So the Wadengraves were ancient owners of of the village that um the church was i guess a part of okay so that's all i have for that that's interesting yeah that's an interesting like sort of story um apparently there there were all there were also like there he did see a woman in white okay and in, in the church and um he had some poltergeist like activity as well well can Happened you explain to woman in white to our listeners Dressed, the ghost dressed in white. Don't they have another purpose though? I thought they were people like they died. Some. Okay, well, this one was just dressed in a white gown, and she was walk wandering around the, the. I guess it was. I want to say rectory because it's probably a rectory. That's what they call it across. Well, over you there, said it was a manor, and normally that like, yeah, the old house where like the lords and ladies used to yeah. live, and then they a lot of times get repurposed as yeah, yeah. So it, it was a church slash manor house. So. Yeah, but the interesting thing about the lady in white is that that's global. Yeah. Like, I've seen stories from all over the world, Brazil, other places, you know. Uh, but, yeah, she's always associated with some kind of tragedy. So. She died on her wedding day. Uh, her husband died on the war and never came back. Like, something tragic happened to this lady, and she happened to also be wearing white. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. Betrayal, unrequited love, all that stuff. So much stuff. Which I guess that kind of fits our theme this week. Yeah. There yeah. you go. See, look at that. Happy Valentine's Day, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you don't become a lady in white. Oh, please don't. don't Especially come since 75% of our audience is women. <laughs> Which I love so much. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, now let's hop 
back across the pond to Florida. Of course, Florida. It's always Florida. Uh, this is my this I, this is my last story. Um, I only wrote two of them, but okay. This one seemed a little longer. I have more information on this one, other than the last one. Mm-hmm. So there's a ghostly bridge that's a few miles north of Mariana, Florida. Okay. So it is named the Bellamy Bridge. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this bridge? Okay, I watch a lot of ghost TV shows, and there's a lot of bridges. So <laughs> I, I'm not entirely sure this... which one is which. There's like a demon bridge. There's like there. Every state has a bridge that's haunted. There's, so I'm this sorry. is very going to have to. No, this is true me. because I was like, okay, I could do two because I was looking down my list of you know ghosts with love stories like tied mm-hmm. to them and i was like bridge 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 <laughs> so like, many bridges <laughs> like okay come on you gotta do it. cut it down to one bridge i i listen i don't know why that's <clears throat> a thing also there's loads of highway ghosts yeah too. absolutely terrifying okay so this is believed to be the most popular ghost story in florida um oh. So the story takes place in the 1800s. All right, let me start by reading out the legend of the story. Okay. Um, Two main characters, uh, Elizabeth Jane Prume, um, later later changed to Bellamy after she married Samuel C. Bellamy. Okay. And he's our other person? He is our other person. He's our other character. Um, everybody else, I don't think anybody else really had a name except for her sister and um, his brother. Hmm, okay. So Elizabeth was a young bride of Samuel. Um, Elizabeth was a daughter of a planter and Samuel was a doctor. Mm-hmm. So he was well-to-do. So he had money. Right. Uh, I think that's what they call it, right? Well-to-do? There you go. Okay. <laughs> I like it. Well-to-do. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. So her sister was already married to her his brother. So, yeah. So Elizabeth's sister. <laughs> Sorry, I just gave like the kombucha foes. <laughs> <laughs> no one can see that because we're only audio. But my, I went. Wait, what? Yeah. So Elizabeth's uh, sister was married to. So she's si- married to his brother, and now the two of them are together. So we're sister-in-law and brother and sister. Yeah. <sighs> something like that. Yes. I'm sorry. Eighteen hundreds. Come on now. Um, so, so Elizabeth is like, oh, he's cute. Does he have a brother? And her sister's like, yeah, girl, they all finally there. Let me hook you up. <laughs> that happens though. I know it, it does Just happen. A series of siblings mm-hmm. who are attractive. So Elizabeth and Samuel, they court for a while. Um, they finally get engaged and announce it. And as a wedding gift to Elizabeth, Samuel builds a freaking mansion in Florida. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So I like to hear. Let me let me back this up. So they're both originally from, uh, or I'm not sure if they're both originally from North Carolina, but Elizabeth is living in North Carolina. Okay. At this point, so she's in North Carolina, Carolina, and they had planned to move to Florida after they were married or during uh, for the wedding. Okay. They planned to move to Florida. So the wedding is set for May 11th, 1837. Okay. It's said that the guests started to arrive a week before the wedding. like Which makes sense. 
like I, well, when the I, travel during that time took so long. This is tr- okay. Now that you say it, you got yeah. Mind. So now you're kind of like, uh, listen, I don't want to accidentally run into, I don't know, a dysentery on my way there. Mm, yeah, you Oregon know, trail like the Oregon here. Trail. You know, so <laughs> might as well got ahead there ahead of time. And you, but the problem is, you probably had to like keep areas prepared for people as they slowly arrive. Yeah, this is you. true. That's a lot this of people true. you have to put up in your house. But I guess since he built her that big mansion, they got space. Yep. And I was just, yeah, when I read this, I was like, does it does it still happen? Do people still, like, travel, like, this much, like, weeks in advance? I mean, I know for families, like, overseas. I mean, one of my cousins had a destination wedding. I didn't go because I didn't have the money at the time to go to Costa Rica. Yeah. But that was, like, a several-day vacation and also mm. a wedding happened there. Mm. <laughs> it was a vacation, but also a wedding happened. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's very cute and very nice. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily how I would do it, but I'm no, I'm cheap. I, I kind of want to would want to be on my honeymoon alone. Yes, with please. my husband, not with all of my relatives. Yeah, y'all can stay here. I'm gonna go. Bye. Get someone watch the kids. That's just me. I want to head to Tokyo and have the honeymoon there. There you go. Mm-mm. Go to the robot museum. Yes. Or ro- not robot museum, robot uh, diner. Well, I knew what you meant. I know you knew what I meant because you're as much of a dork as I am. <laughs> so the two were married in the guard in the rose garden behind the home. Oh. Um. But that'll be short lived. I was gonna say, when's the tragedy hit? So, like that day. <laughs> Ooh. Oh goodness! I, they even get to consummate. Um. So. I'm going to use that from now on. Instead of, saying, instead of saying like sex, I'm just going to say that they didn't even get to consummate. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. So let me add this. The last lines of her, of her vows were, I will always, I will love you always and forever. Mm-hmm. Never will I leave you, leave you. Oh, I can't talk. Um, oh, so, she died? so later that night, they have the reception, you know, dancing, eating, drinking. Um, Elizabeth gets tired from, you know, all the dancing and stuff and excuses, her, ex- excuses herself to go lay down uh, in the master suite. Mm-hmm. But she sits down in a chair instead, you know, comfy, comfy chair. She gets comfortable. Like a nice little chase lounge. Yeah. So she's there wearing her dress um, and she falls asleep. Oh, is this one of those things where it's unhealthy because the dress, you know what I mean? Like, I know in, like, the Victorian era, they needed to loosen them straps. Over the corset and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it's not like that, right? No, it's not like that. Okay. No, that no, that didn't happen. Oh, <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> um, So, she falls asleep. Her her arm knocks over a, can, a candelabra. Oh, no. She's she awoken. Her dream home on fire. She's awoken by intense heat and pain. And like everyone, everyone else is downstairs. They're still partying, and they can hear her screams from upstairs. They look to the stairs, and they see her engulfed in flames, oh. running down the stairs. Oh my god! So her her new newly husband and others they tried to help her get the flames out, which they, you know they get the flames out, but the damage is already done. Oh no! She did not know to stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> It was the 1800s, so no, See, no he did not. We needed the 90s. We needed uh, that bear to oh tell us God. how to how to survive. You're talking Smokey. Yeah, we needed Smokey. Oh my God! Only you can prevent your house from you burning. Stop. 
Don't go to sleep next to a candelabra. That's for real, though. I think about that even now, like with me having candles. I'm like, mm. don't fall asleep with the candle on. I mean, it's not. It wouldn't be as bad, you know. I have a sprinkler system and yeah. things of that nature, but still, like, it kind of freaks me out too. Like the idea that you could. I've fallen asleep with the stove on once before. Oh. I put eggs on to boil and then I kind of nodded off and like, all of a sudden I smelt a smell and I was like, oh, eggs and ran across the room. Um, okay. Well, okay. That's understandable. I've done something similar. Yeah, silly like that. It kind of frightened me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, don't cook when tired. Yeah. Don't. Even if hungry, <laughs> don't cook. Yeah, uh, so she was burned probably horribly. Right. She was badly burned. Uh, she would only be alive for a few days after the fire. Okay, so we're talking about major, like, third degree, second degree, yeah, partial that, thickness burns. That was a really bad fire. Oof. Um, so her alleged, alleged last words were the same as the end of her vows. So, I don't know if you remember. That she would love him until she died? I, I will love you always and forever. Never will I leave you. Oh. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, no, it seems like ominous, right? That does sound a little ominous now. That went from cute vows to, oh, she's going to kill your new bride no. as, a, as a corpse. No, 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 no. Nothing like that happens. So Samuel, who was understandably a wreck after, you know, yeah, after this, guy. he fell into a depression and soon hit the bottle. So he was drunk all the time. I feel you, buddy. <laughs> So he refused to live in the mansion that he had built for Elizabeth and would later commit suicide. Oh, gosh. So much suicide tonight. Yeah. Uh, but Elizabeth was true to her word. She was unwilling to leave without her love. So her spirit would wander the swamps around the Bellamy Bridge for, well, I guess, forever. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> Eternity. So, so they see her now. Yeah. So people have reported seeing her. Um. So Did Samuel. She burn. <clears throat> so. <laughs> That's a really awful question to ask, but I want to know. <laughs> but was she burn? Was she burned though? So is she before, like, is this before her memory? <sighs> because I watch a lot of ghost shows, mm -hmm. and so sometimes they talk about ghosts being able to present in the way that they want. Right. Not like the way that they died, which is true. Like the like I just like the naked one. True, true, true. true. Yeah, she just wants to be in the happy time of her life. Yeah. So Samuel, you know, he kills himself, um, but it's this is when he is in. Now, excuse me, while I mispronounce this name. Alrighty. Um, I'm pretty sure I know how to say it, but I'm saying it the way it's spelled. Okay. Um. So it's it's Chattahoochee, Florida. That sounds about right, actually. I mean, I thought it was like North Carolina or something because of you know how they have their names. I um, remember like that up here too in Pennsylvania. This is true too. So that's how it's spelled. So if it's wrong, I kind of am sorry, but not really. Um, I feel like that's one of the indigenous names that's not that difficult to say. Right, because it's spelled like it's, I'm pretty sure it's spelled like it sounds. Yeah. Or sounds like it's spelled, whatever. I think um, good. So churches back in that day didn't recognize suicide victims and were not given status in the church. Right. Oh, yeah. That's still, isn't that sort of still relevant to Catholic churches? I wouldn't know. I, it's been a long time since <laughs> I went to Catholic school. 
So he was buried in an unmarked, unmarked grave and forgotten. So this is why she would never find him. So she would always search for him. But, but, but his spirit's not looking for her spirit. This is sad. Mm. You better look for me if I die. <laughs> I got you. If we both die, you better find me in the afterlife. Of course, of course, of course. Um, give me one sick. It's a dark thing to say. I'm sorry. You better look for me. <laughs> you, you better, better look, look for me when we die. You better look for me. I'm going to come find you. Oh, my God. Hold on a sec. I'm looking for, not you, but information. <laughs> um, Because I've written down. I, I got lazy and I started typing stuff instead. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So, there is some fact and there is some fiction to the story as well. Okay. So, the names of the people are were Elizabeth and Samuel. But they Not didn't... Bellamy. No, no, it was Bellamy. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the names are all the same. <clears throat> They didn't get married in Florida, though, but they got married in uh, North Carolina. Okay. So that's where the confusion comes from. Yeah. So they got married in North Carolina on July 15th, 1834. So this is three years before the legend story says they got married. Hmm. <clears throat> so Elizabeth did not die by a fire, by the way. How did she die? She died by malaria. Oh. So. <clears throat> Still sad. This is part of my my tip notes. Um, so they, I guess he at at the mansion he built was a plantation. I thought about that when you said planter, but I let it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went so, planter, huh? Her father was a planter, so that's surprising. Eighteen hundreds, yeah. interesting. Yeah. I didn't want to, I didn't, I, like, I didn't get that until I started reading more, and I was like, really? It crossed really? my mind briefly. This is Black History Month, too. God damn it. <laughs> my brain immediately went, okay, so slave owners, gotcha. Yeah, so they had a plantation, and uh, it was northwest of Mariana, okay. Florida. So, they, I don't know, I'm going to tell you how many, they, they had more than 80 African slaves. Okay. Um, I guess they grew king cotton, and I guess the waters they have there, mm-hmm. they they got, I guess were mosquito ridden. Ew! So, oh, so malaria was a big deal. So down there. yeah, that so makes sense. That's how she um contracted malaria with the mosquito disease. Mm-hmm. Um, now. She lived long enough. Well, uh, obviously, she didn't live the, uh, the same amount of time. I guess is the same, like her death, because she died on the same day. She died on the day she got married. No. Oh, okay. She died three years later of oh, malaria. So she did die on the day from the original legend. Yes. But she did get to consummate. She did. See, at least in this story, that happens. And she had a son. Okay. Named Alexander. He was eighteen months old. And oh, poor baby. He died seven days after she died of malaria. Malaria. Because he had a very bad fever. Um, so that's so. Is that kind of where the similarities end? No, I'm going to say. Um, so Samuel, he he didn't end his life. I guess I don't. I don't it doesn't say in the legend when he does it. Mm-hmm. So, 
he he serves as a delegate um, from Jackson County. Oh, a politician. Yeah. Um. So he serves as a delegate, and excuse me. And later on, I guess he lost like a fortune in the 1840s. Oh. And later on, he would take his life in Chattahoochee. Oh, okay. So that was more common during the time. Yeah. Time so. Period. So that's like that's where the similarities end. Okay. So where do they get this fire? Where do they, why do they think that she yeah, caught on fire? That's peculiar. Right? Okay. So, there's another story that is mixed into this story. Okay, so we have multiple lore, yes. legends, crisscrossing. Yes, absolutely. Um, Let me see if I got the name right. Hold on a sec. Okay. So, there's a novelist. Her name is Carolyn Lee Hintz. Mm-hmm. Now, she lived in Mariana during the final years of her life and was buried in St. Luke's Episcopal Church. Okay. Um, and one story, yes, she was a, she was a novelist. Um, in one of her stories, she tells the story of a, of a wedding day night tragedy that bears a striking resemblance to the story of Elizabeth Bellamy. Oh, interesting. So... So people took one of her stories as fact. Uh, yes, they mixed it in there. So this is a quote from her. So turning away, she threw herself into a large easy chair in front of the fire. And in spite of the excited state of her feelings and the extreme want of sentiment invicted by the act, she fell asleep in her downy nest. She had been up almost all the preceding night and on her feet all day. And had been dancing with such extraordinary enthusiasm that the soft cushion and a gentle warmth of the room soothed her, soothed her mm-hmm. <laughs> to instantaneous response. How long she slept, she knew not. She was awoken by the sense of heat and suffocation as if her lungs were turned to fire. Starting up, she found herself encircled by a blaze of light. That seemed to innate uh, from her own body. Her light dress was one sheet of flame. The chair she left was enveloped in the same destroying element. So. I guess this like is the same story like this. This bride, she lingers on uh, for a couple days and then she dies. Mm. Um. And funny enough, the written story, that's like one of my fears. Which one? The falling asleep? Being burned alive. Oh. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So. This is that's basically like all I have um, for that. There there were I mean, there are sightings of Elizabeth's ghost wandering the swamp looking for her beloved it's somebody's ghost. It's somebody's ghost. We don't like. We don't know who. I'm pretty sure it's hers, but ah, uh, my leg fell asleep. That's okay. <laughs> so, I want to say Happy Valentine's Day to people. Oh yeah, 
happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. Um, this is our Valentine's Day episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Absolutely. I, and we learned about a crazy couple and some ghosts. Sexy a sexy ghost. Sexy ghost. So sexy ghost. Sexy ghost and a fiery, swampy ghost. See, I feel like if I died in a hail of fire, I'm walking around on fire as a ghost. This girl is it just fire. would look cool. Can you imagine just this woman appears in your bedroom at night engulfed in flames? That reminds me of Supernatural. There, Listen, several things tonight made me think of Supernatural. <laughs> really? <laughs> Literally the first episode of Supernatural is about a, yeah, a on woman a bridge. in white. Yeah, uh, yeah, she's on a bridge, on right? On a highway. Yes. Yes, there you go. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I thought about that several times tonight. And uh, as far as things go for the end of the podcast, uh, you can always find me on caught podcast on tiktok or brian at creeps with brian and i'm currently halfway through <laughs> uh, my killers in your state series she will get to your state yeah a lot of people ask on every video have I, you done my state yet i guarantee you if your state was in the beginning as an alphabet she's already done your state and, yeah. <laughs> i'm in the m's today Oh my goodness! Um, and I'm gonna try to get back on s- streaming on Twitch. Ooh. So maybe maybe I'll start playing some horror games on there. There we go. That sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we just want to interact with everybody, like usual. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, you just have to go to Anchor.fm/slash Wankillers Get Caught, and you can also support us by supporting our sponsors, which are Anchor and the Magic Class Boutique. Right, right. Which I said, as if you are listening to this podcast right now, there are 12 different pairs of serial killer earrings or inspired earrings <laughs> that you can buy for your loved ones or yourself. Right. Always check the, uh, the show notes because we do have links um, to our anchor. Just in case you guys want to leave a message and you don't know how to get there, just, you know. We would love to hear from you. Yeah, and absolutely. If you ask any interesting or fun questions, we will answer them on one of the podcasts. Absolutely. I hope everyone's having a great day or night, wherever you happen to be listening to this. As the weeks move on, we get a larger and larger international audience. Which is awesome. And it's very exciting. And have a good night. And or day. A happy Valentine's Day again. Happy <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs>